Welcome back, everybody, to Stacking Growth. This is Cassidy. Carl, how you doing? Oh, yeah. Doing good, Cassidy. Thanks for asking. You always do. You're so kind. I feel like it's necessary. I don't really care how you're doing, but I feel like I, know. I need to ask it. That's what's so funny about it. It's like deep down, I know that you could care less how I'm doing, but you ask. And it's just like, it's good. It's good. It's polite, you know, for the audience. So Cassidy does like me, everyone, sometimes. So I want the audience to think I'm empathetic and I'm a good leader and I care about my employees. But right. Those um, are the themes and you, you play the role, Cassidy. So I appreciate you. I digress. You're about ready to introduce our guest. Let's do it. MJ Smith. Y'all, I'm speaking to the audience here. First of all, well, let me just, MJ, hello. How are hello. you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing I gotta awesome. ask too. I'm super pumped to have you. Um, I've been asking you to do this for like, since like the day after you started at Colab. And uh, there's some reasons why we push this off. And I just, that's what I respect about you so much. I've been begging you to do this and you kept telling me, so everyone knows like Carl, like we're seeing some amazing, like positive signals and traction and some good stuff from all the things that me and the marketing org and, and sales are doing at Colab, but I want sticky, consistent results. So once I feel comfortable, like what we're doing really works and we haven't just seen a temporary spike uh, on the proverbial, you know, HubSpot reports, we're going to talk about it. Um, so that time finally came, uh, like Christmas. So today we're going to unpack, man, just the beginning to the current state of what you did, why you did it. You actually built a demand engine from scratch, an early stage company. And this is like, there's like, it's so elusive to like, there's no playbooks out there for doing this. And it's so difficult. Like there's anecdotal information out there. Yeah, do this. Yeah, do that. But you bucked a lot of conventional uh, advice that you might hear on LinkedIn. You chose a different path for certain things. And uh, I'm just really excited to break it all down. It's going to be a longer episode than usual. I'm just excited to get into jump into the deep end with you and really get granular with what you did and why you did it. So before we jump in though, I also wanted to congratulate you. Brand new CMO, chief in the house. So, <laughs> Thank you very much. Yep, congrats. I called it, I think you called it that I called it. I was like, MJ is gonna be a CMO before 2024. And uh, dang, you beat even that estimate by like two quarters. So it's <laughs> awesome. So congrats. Carl did call it. And when it happened, I was like, you called it. But um, yeah, <laughs> hopefully uh, today we can um, uh, we can give people the episode I wish I had when I started, which is ooh. like, like everybody says that this works, but like, here's some stuff that actually worked and um, maybe some some things you might learn from having actually done it um, that uh, I, I like to try to make all of my LinkedIn content and all that good stuff pretty practical and, and give real examples. So um, yeah, that version of events. Cannot wait. All right, let's jump in. I actually don't want to start with where you started, MJ. I want to start before that. One of the decisions that just plagues marketers a lot of times and they struggle with is the decision to choose a company. So can we start before you even got hired uh, by Colab? And can you walk me through, like, walk us through, like, how you were thinking about your next role moving on from Refine Labs, how you vetted out Colab as a product, as a company, and then how you vetted the executive team, right? To make sure that there was alignment and you know all the things, right? So can you walk us through and can we start in the very, like the pre-beginning 
How did you select CoLab and how did you work through that decision? Yep. So I don't know if I would have this much clarity. Um, I don't know if I had this much clarity going in, but uh, in retrospect, you know, you always kind of hindsight's 2020 and I have a lot of clarity about the two things that I would look for next time, having kind of gone through this process and having it had uh, worked out as well as it did, obviously. Um, and the two things uh, that I think made the difference for me are number one, I was super aligned with the things that the CEO wanted most from my role. And two, I was super, super impressed with the CEO, um, the co-founder CTO, and um, at the time her title was head of business development, but uh, it was it was less of a title than she deserved. And her uh, current title is chief strategy officer. So those three key people that I met in the uh, in the hiring process. So um, the two things um, the CEO wanted and he was able to articulate very clearly. I don't know that every CEO would necessarily be able to articulate as clearly as he did, but it was definitely product marketing. We need to get the right message that really resonates with our audience and demand gen. Gotta like put some points on the board and make that repeatable and scalable. And product marketing and demand gen are the two things that I love to do. Um, I, I think you could probably argue that every CEO of every early start stage startup everywhere wants demand gen and wants you to put stuff in the pipeline repeatably. Um, but I don't think that every CEO is so clear about their desire to have a message that resonates in their real commitment to like fundamental product marketing. I think that is a um, side effect of having a, a serial CMO on our board, um, who's a very good product marketer. Um, and then in terms of the the being really impressed by the C-suite, it sounds stupid. Like, of course, you want to be really just like blown away by the people you're going to work for. Um, but I've been in a number of hiring processes, uh, mostly before I joined Refine Labs um, for marketing leadership roles at early stage companies. And I haven't been like blown away by the founder uh and the people I meet in the process every single time. And I think that's a mix of two things. Sometimes I think maybe the startup isn't the the top tier, the the best, the most impressive. And, you know, at, probably at that time that I was interviewing, neither was I. Um, but the other thing is sometimes I just like, I don't think they're trying that hard to impress you, which is probably a reflection on how excited they are about you as a candidate, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to be impressed by them and you want to know that they're trying to sell you really hard because they're impressed by you too. And I think uh, so, so being so excited about the people, I think is a real signal of mutual fit. How did you like pressure, like really pressure test? Because again, to your point, any any CEO that wants to court somebody like MJ, I mean, like, look, before Collab, you are already at a status of legendary, right? So of course, like, I'm sure you had a million opportunities and CEOs are just tripping over themselves trying to get the MJ Peters at the time to come and build their marketing engine. How did you pressure test that they were authentic and they weren't just, yeah, yeah, whatever, MJ, like whatever you want to do. And they were going to like flip kind of the narrative once you got in. Because again, to your point, I'm sure every CEO is like, yeah, we want demand gen. But how'd you, how'd you pre pressure test that that wasn't lead gen demand gen and that was good demand gen? Like, how did you really push through the, you know, just kind of being courted? right? Uh, and, and get to like the truth. What were some tactics maybe that you kind of deployed or some questions that you asked that really got to the heart of the matter? Yeah, um, I appreciate you, Carl. But uh, uh, the truth of the matter is that I was definitely a stretch VP when I went to when I went to Colab. I had never 
uh, led marketing at an enterprise software company before. So I, you know, they definitely took a chance on me. Also, I don't think most people know this, but I reached out to Colab, not the other way around. Um, And I I had to double text Adam before he responded to me. So I actually reached out to him, did not get a response and reached out to him again. Um, So you texted him. No, no, I just used the term double text. I, I linked in the empty. Oh, um, <laughs> you went SDR like cold outreach. I like it. Okay. This is yeah. awesome. And on the second time, I, I made a Loom video and dissected the homepage of the website, um, which apparently got circulated internally um, to the people who are now on my team. And apparently, right before they pushed play, they were like, who is this person? How dare they? And, and then at the end of the video, they're like, okay, all right, she made some fair points. Well, like a uh, pressure testing of the authenticity, right? Like, how do I know I'm not stepping into like the CEOs and just telling me what I want to hear versus like, okay, this is real. And I guess you just brought up an interesting nugget of like, you chose them. Mm-hmm. So to begin with, at least, um, and then you blew them away and impressed them and they chose you, even though, you know, according to your words, you were risky, but like, I guess we have to even go there, right? Like, why, why did you? choose them? What did you see in them before you'd really talk to anybody? Yeah. So Adam did, does have a personal brand on LinkedIn. Um, so I knew that he was aligned with the like measurement methodology, which, which does drive a lot of, you know, thinking and decision-making as trivial as it might sound. Um, they, they also had, um, I don't know. I can't remember if I saw this before or after I joined, but they had a marketing plan before I got there. And the serial CMO, who is now a VC and is on our board, he like, you know, gave them a lot of ideas on how to structure their marketing plan. And one of the slides that he really told them they should have in there, which I love, is like our marketing principles or our marketing philosophy. And I think they had like five points on them. And one of them was embrace the dark funnel. And it was like, you know, a lot of stuff happens that you can't see. And if you just measure MQLs and force things to be plain and in the open, you might incentivize the wrong decision making. But um, I have left uh, that slide of marketing philosophy. I've made some adjustments, but I left that slide in our in our marketing plan. Um, and my philosophy aligned strongly with their philosophy, and I could tell that in the in the interview process. I think Refine Labs uh, and Chris's content had a had a massive impact on Colab. And then I also think that serial CMO who's on our board is like. Uh, product marketers, product marketer. And so am I, like I consider myself a product marketer turned CMO. And I did speak to him as part of the interview process as well, which I think is, I don't know, maybe that's unconventional. Maybe it's, maybe it's something that often happens, but um, from a product marketing perspective, he and I aligned really strongly on, on how to approach product marketing, messaging, positioning narrative. Um, and I think he strongly influenced the CEO. And so uh in turn, uh, Adam and I have a have strong alignment around that. And Adam was like very open and transparent around like, I didn't even know what marketing was until like six months ago. And, um, and I've learned so much and like, and so just having like that, um, just even him taking me through his own thought transformation, it's like, okay, this guy is open-minded. He's willing to change his mind. Um, and he might've started with some of the more conventional thinking that a lot of CEOs might have of early stage companies before they've done a lot of marketing or worked with a strong marketing leader. And he was already starting to evolve. And I was like, this is someone that I can like um, build trust with and uh, he's open-minded and we can work together to align our philosophies and build something great over time. You mentioned it. Uh, one of the draws was the quality of the leadership team and the CEO. But you, I want to I hit on this point Carl mentioned. Why did you reach out to this company? 
was it something about what they did tied to your background? Like what drew you to them? Um, was there something in addition to the people? Yeah. So my background is in industrial and I, I kind of always knew when I went to refine labs that I wanted to go back in-house eventually. I do like being, being accountable to a hundred percent of the results and uh, having all the levers. And I also, I come from a background where marketing is like very overlapping, inextricable from product and product roadmap, probably even more so than it is intertwined with sales um, in in the manufacturing world, which is my background before this. And so I like being in-house because I think you get more of that cross-functional work as well. I did think I was going to be at Refine Labs longer, um, but this this role came up when it came up, right? Before I even joined Refine Labs, um, I knew if I was going to make the jump into tech that Uh, My best shot would be industrial tech because I have an unfair competitive advantage having been the customer for six years. So at that time, I went and found like all of the industrial tech startups that I could find. And I followed every single one of the founders on LinkedIn. And so I had seen Adam's content like for over a year when he finally posted the VP of marketing role. And like I said, I was expect, I, I loved my job at Refine Labs. I was expecting to stay there longer. And so I like, for a while, I like agonized over whether I should even apply. <laughs> and um, so it was the only job I applied to. And I eventually was like, you know, I'll, I'll do the interview process because I can always, if I, A, I might not get an offer and I could always decline it if I wanted to and stay here. But uh, I found myself through the process wanting to join the team more and more. And so that is what ultimately drove me to um, accept the offer at the end of the process. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And the reason I wanted you to outline that is that over my lifetime of kind of working at different companies, I've, I've found similar to you, really only two things matter. The quality of the people you work with or for and the passion you have for the thing that you do, um, i.e. the company, the industry, the product. Etc. So I think add to that, I just love the fact that you like your process for how you got to where you've gotten is, should be something everybody should be doing. Who are the where are the type of places I want to work? Who are the type of people I want to follow? How do I get ahead of this and start doing that research now so it pays off in the future someday? Um, well done, and thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, capstone on top of that was like, I just, what, what sticks out to me is how just proactive you were right in reaching out. It wasn't a reactive thing. And I just, I wonder how many folks do that. I don't know. You know, um, you always hear like the platitudes on LinkedIn of like, Oh, you should be being proactive and make a dream list of companies you want to work for over the next 10 years and start to nurture them. But I don't think a lot of people action that. Um, and it's just refreshing to hear kind of how you went through that. That's awesome. I didn't know that part of it. I mean, I know a lot of like your story and actually like that's new information to me. So um, thank you for sharing. Okay. Let's jump in um, to you got hired. Congrats. It seems like you beat a bunch of people out like late stage too. And you just snuck in as a stretch VP. So RIP to those other candidates. Hope you're doing well. You have a lot of decisions to make in the very beginning. I mean, there's so many things that you can do. And I know like me and Cassidy, we're on these sales calls all the time at Refine Labs of like marketers that are in your position, were in your position early. They're like, I just got brought on to just make miracles happen. Where do I start? So let's start there. Uh, What did you feel like you needed to do what are you doing? We, you're back to week one. Teleport back in time. Week one. 
what do you do clean slate what decisions are you making mm -hmm. so um i every time i start a new company i talk to customers first couple of weeks and it's not like i've seen a lot of people be like oh you know the new vp the new cmo they're like i'll talk to customers and i'll talk to the team and like they don't do anything right i've seen that point of view um i've seen the other point of view which is like don't don't just start doing stuff without understanding what's going on I really firmly believe that you can both talk to the customers, talk to the team, and do stuff fast. Um, I also believe that the number one reason that people don't talk to customers is because it's actually not that easy. So um, I had a huge competitive advantage of I had personally worked with several directors of engineering that had never heard of Colab and never spoken to Colab before. And however, I had a professional relationship with them and was able to just cash in on that and say, hey, can I have 30 minutes of your time to talk to you about what the priorities are in your role, float this software by you, get your response, um, talk to you about some of these business processes where I know that people use Colab. And I just got a bunch of yeses. Like if you were new in a role with no contacts like that, it would take you a lot longer to line up those conversations. And I paired those conversations with gong calls. So um, I call my process for customer research marketing discovery. It's like sales discovery, but um, it it's a little bit more open-ended, right? In sales discovery, you basically ask questions to learn about the customer so that you can position your product for them. Marketing discovery, you ask questions to learn about the customer for a whole variety of purposes, right? You could be doing messaging on the website. You could be feeding that into product roadmap. You could be doing win-loss analysis, right? Like, so you kind of, it's, it's more open-ended. You kind of got to define how you're going to do it. The first application of marketing discovery for me at Colab was I need to define the three or four business processes where Colab is most commonly used and I need to build value props through the lenses of each of those business processes. And I need to turn them into solutions pages on the website. Um, because at the time, we had top level brand marketing messaging, which is like the type of messaging you have on homepage, for example. And we had bottom of the pyramid, like product features and what those benefits are. But we had nothing in the middle about like, if you use Colab in this business process, then you will have X better results. And so there were some ideas like we, that's basically product market fit, right? Like what does the customer use your product for so that they can transform their business results? And we had product market fit in a couple of use cases, but we hadn't translated that into our go-to-market, our product marketing messaging, not in sales dev, not in sales and not, you know, in any of our marketing. So we started there. Um, and in my first two weeks on the job, I researched one of those use cases thoroughly, wrote the website copy, worked with our digital marketing manager, put that first uh, solutions page up there, and then worked through the next two in like the next two to three weeks after that. Um, and I remember our CEO saw that I shipped a page in two weeks, and that was a big deal for him because he really wanted somebody who was not just going to build the team and stay up in an ivory tower, but roll their sleeves up and do the work. I love that. I want to come back to that. But first, you in your mind, you proposed a solution and somehow you were like, hey, like I see this gap of like, I don't know, middle funnel, like solution page, like let's go backwards a little bit, though, like of all the things that you could do, I'm sure that you uncovered, you said this is a number one priority. Mm -hmm. Why? 
Um, well, I think it's just that is how uh, that that's the easiest, fastest application of customer research. So I always have a bias towards I need to talk to some customers and understand why they would buy collab. Like I need to like I need to rationalize it for myself. I think I almost go into a new role like thinking like a salesperson almost. If, like if I had to go convince somebody to buy this software for fifty to hundred thousand dollars a year how would I justify that? And I am uh, not a salesy person, not in the traditional salesy sense of the word, right? Like I need to be able to like basically sit there and build a business case, which is what a good salesperson does too, by the way. Um, but, you know, in order to build a strong business case, you need a lot of inputs. Like you need market knowledge. You need to understand context. You need to, um, you know, paint a picture of the before collab and after collab um, and the best way to tie the before and after to dollars in, dollars out and build a robust business case with a strong ROI is to apply the use case or, or business process lens to it. Um, because once you contextualize how, how the customer uses your product in their business, um, then, then you can actually start to calculate those kinds of things. So if that layer of your messaging stack is missing, then there's there's really no way to have have a strong foundation for demand gen, sales enablement, or quite frankly, sales. Why? Um, oh, go ahead, Cassidy. I was going to ask: Was it clear to the rest of the company that this was a gap, or is this something based on your experience? You're like, oh, we just have this obvious gap here. Let's go knock that out right now before we can. That's kind of a foundational element to all the other things that you talked about. Like, is it, was this kind of on the minds of everybody else or was it kind of like a new insight they just figured out quickly? Yeah. I don't think that this was on the minds of everyone else. When I took Adam through it, he was like, yep, that makes sense. And he latched onto it. And this is part of the reason it was so successful is he was like, whoa, use cases. We need this middle of the pyramid messaging. Like, we're going to build sales, uh, you know, a sales deck, uh, you know, at least a slide about it. Like we're going to train people on it. I'm going to talk about it at the all hands. Like he, the light bulb went off in his head immediately and he helped me like propel and get momentum. Um, and still, honestly, this use case mentality is, is probably one of the best things we did in the entire 15 months I've been here. Uh, it, it did come from past experience though. Um, and it's interesting because in my past lives um, as an in-house marketing leader, I was at manufacturing companies that were like 20 to 40 year old manufacturing companies. So like they were established businesses, but what often happens with technology companies as they, as they grow older and more successful or more established is like they almost forget that initial insight that gave them product market fit in the first place because maybe the founder moves on and you know maybe you just have established relationships with like these distributors and they just buy from you every year and you don't like it's almost like you forget how to market and you forget how to sell and you forget what what made people buy from you when you were a nobody right and so in my past lives my job has been to like rediscover that so that the company can continue to open up new lines of business and grow at a pace that is faster than the underlying market growth rate. Because if you don't know how to do the work of discovering a value prop and then scaling a GTM motion around it, then the only growth you're ever going to get is just riding the coattails of the underlying market growth rate. If it's 3%, you're going to grow 3%. If it's 5%, you're going to grow 5%. If you are in a 5% market and you want to grow 20%, then you have to create more value and be able to scale more value than like the typical business. 
So that's what I used to do. And I, I approached it the same exact way. It's like, what's the business process? How do we positively impact it, that in a number of ways so that the dollars in or dollars out are bigger than they would be without our product? Do you find that like, I meant, first of all, I mean, that was incredible. It was awesome. Um, what do you find like, have you already, you haven't been at, at CoLab like for forever. Are you in your, you start, you've started, you're in year two. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you already gone through a second cycle? You feel like of the rediscovery? When, when is it time to like now? So we're talking, let's talk about to, to the more mature SaaS company now, slightly more mature. Yep. Um, when is it time to do, the second kind of round, like how often do you revisit uh, in your, from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think some, some SaaS companies, they'll hit like 10 or 20 million ARR and then they'll hit the second cycle because we're enterprise and we want to sell to SMB or we're SMB and we want to sell to enterprise. Or like we started out in this like kind of small TAM that was a little slice of a much bigger TAM. And now, you know, and we raised money saying we're going to go after this huge TAM. So now we got to build a product and a go-to-market motion around the, the big goal, even though our initial success was around, you know, the small goal, right? Like, you know, you see all the sales tech companies doing it right now, right? Like Gong was call recording, and now they also want to kind of move into Clary's space and do forecasting. Um, or they want to move into sales loft space and do, um, you know, sales engagement, right? Um, and so I think it depends on like the growth trajectory yeah. of the company. But anytime like you're moving outside of where you have true product market fit and go to market fit, then you need to be able to do this stuff. I want to take this conversation in two directions. One, I want to hear what else you did, right? So I have a what yeah. else question for you because you're talking about content on the website. What I haven't heard yet is like, how did you get that in front of the right people? Right. Mm -hmm. and that's, that's phase two, right? Like distribution. So if you could tackle that also keep in the back of your mind, I'd love to hear what you might've done different or mistakes that you made or what surprised you about the, the kind of like this journey that you went on the, in the first 90 days. So let's start with distribution. What else did you do in the beginning in those really early days to get quick wins and to kind of accelerate growth? Yeah. Well, so um, when I got there, Adam was like, we budgeted for two headcounts. So you tell me how you want to use that, right? Which, which is great because on the one hand, I think a mistake a lot of CEOs make is they like open up all the marketing roles at once, including the leadership role. And then they hire other people and then just hire the leader on top of them. It's like, hire the leader first, let the leader hire the people. <laughs> um, so he did that um, or the team at Colab did that. So I had two um, headcount to, I hate the word headcount, um, but you know, <laughs> we, before you define the role, I guess that's what it is. Um, but um, I opened up a designer role because we were sharing a designer with the product design team. And for accountability purposes, I just, uh, that didn't make me feel good. <laughs> um, and we fully utilized that person immediately. Um, so we hired a, a brand designer who got promoted to senior brand designer. She's been awesome for us. And then I made a series of like not terrible mistakes, but I was like, okay, I think I need a senior content role. And then I interviewed all these people for the senior content role. I was like, oh, I don't need a senior content role. Um, and so I, I actually ended up like getting all the way to the offer stage with this person and not making an offer, which sucks, right? I wasted that person's time. I sent him a gift card. I referred him to another marketing leader and that marketing leader hired him. So it all worked out in the end. But like I had a hard time figuring out what that second role needed to be. And so I just never hired anybody. 
just hired the senior brand designer and I brought on an agency for demand gen, which is, I knew I always wanted to bring on an agency for demand gen to start. Um, and then later down the line, after we kind of proved out that go-to-market, uh, like that, that we could reliably generate pipeline through paid social mostly, um, then I made that somebody's full-time job. But I think there's a lot of risks inherent in trying to prove out paid social for the first time. Um, and I think it's important to like prove that it works a little bit just through kind of like elbow grease and scrappiness um, and throwing some tests together uh, or working with an agency who obviously have resor- more resources that can scale up and down before you make it someone's full-time job because you're asking that person who you bring in as a full-time hire to take a huge risk with like a their primary source of income and b their career path to come join your company and and to plug someone into like a motion that you don't even know is going to work for your company um i think in a lot of cases is very unfair but i think a lot of startups do that to good people hmm what what so you brought on an agency to help you with the demand gen side to prove it out mm-hmm. like can you define I think a lot of companies are in that mode, right? We talk to them at Refine Labs. We're trying to prove out this motion and that's kind of our role. Like, how do you know that it's proven? What were the things that were like, all right, these five boxes need to be checked and this is when we're going to be ready to now to to, to staff this function or resource this function internally? Yeah, I mean, two things. Number one, you have to be generating hand raisers and pipeline from the motion. Maybe not a huge amount, Maybe not even enough that you're going to completely break even on the investment after accounting for sales overhead and close rates. But you do need to be generating real hand raisers that really are serious about evaluating your product that are ideal customer profile fits for you. Um, And you need to be doing that several months in a row. It can't just be like one random person here and there. Um, So I think by the time we made it someone's full-time job, we were generating four to eight inbound opportunities a month. And at least a couple of them are really, really good fits. Then some of them have closed since then. Um, The second thing is we broke it. (laughs) We broke the agency model, right? Like we just got to the point where we were throwing way too many requests at them and we wanted to move way faster and we could move way faster than they were able to go just you know, because of how much we were paying them and how big of an agency they were and all these things, nothing wrong with them. Like that we broke their model, right? And actually this particular agency is kind of a designed to be broken model. They specialize in seed to series B and they help you get off the ground and and then you're supposed to graduate out of it, right? So once it felt like we have broken this system and what we need now is to plug in a full-time person and not an agency that can give us, you know, five to 10 hours a week, um, it, it was obvious we felt the pain, <laughs> um, but it was just easy to pull the trigger on the full-time hire at that point. So you used, uh, again, the high intent inbound and then just the working relationship became kind of burdensome and we're like, all right, we're ready to kind of scale on our own. And we've squeezed all the juice kind of from from the agency. Let's talk about measurement really quickly. Like, right, it's tough. Um, unless you were running like things that were gated and everything was like, you know, last touch kind of conversion driven advertising on LinkedIn, maybe that's what you did, I guess. How, how did you measure, again, the to prove it out, how'd you measure that LinkedIn was viable, um, like really tactically here, like in CRM, how did you know? Yep. So it was self-reported attribution. How did you hear about us? 
The only channel we were running with the agency was LinkedIn. And that is because paid search does not work for collab because nobody is searching for what we sell. We are creating a category. And I know saying that you're creating a category is controversial, but we are creating a category. I understand what it means. And it doesn't mean like, and so one sign that you're creating a category is that paid search does not work for you at all, in case anybody's wondering. Um, so yeah, so we were only doing LinkedIn. Um, and you know, somebody fills out the get a demo form on our website. We have multiple get a demo forms, uh, at the bottom of each solutions page. And also we have a main, um, CTA, get a demo form. And, uh, you know, then that comes through on, we copy it to Slack. Here's a new inbound and, um, the person has to book the meeting, right. And then the AE has to have the meeting and accept that opportunity into their pipeline and, we will then, you know, create an op. We're, we're, we're on HubSpot and Salesforce and we'll create an op. And then there's also, you know, so so the uh, form field, self-reported attribution, how did you hear about us? That'll become a contact property. When we create the op, we copy the contact property into an opportunity or a deal property. Um, and then we build all of our dashboards based on that. So um, I, I call the field in HubSpot um, deal source and deal source detail. So um, deal source is just inbound, outbound expansion. And deal source detail, LinkedIn, Facebook, search, uh, word of mouth, you know, uh, customer that left their job and went somewhere else and now wants to buy collab again. <laughs> um, so yeah, like the deal source detail has like, I don't know, 12 properties. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we can build reports off of that. So my dashboard's like, you know, qualified dollars of inbound by deal source detail, um, number of SQLs by deal source. You know, those are all, all things that I look at on my inbound dashboard. Um, I do everything in HubSpot. Our sales team is operating out of Salesforce. So we map everything. Um, and I did uh, rip out, what were we using? We were using the Salesforce mar marketing cloud and I ripped it out and put it in HubSpot because, and, and I know a lot of people are like, don't change the tech stack. That's so tactical. For me, it was purely like, I know how to use HubSpot. <laughs> so I- did you do that? Like what month? Do you remember? Like how soon I, did you do that? I think I, I started getting it going in like May, like April. I started in March. I think I started the buying process in April. I got it there and I got it up and going in May. And then I was like fully, like really confident in the dashboards. I kind of tweaked them over time by July, I think. But yeah, the, the decision purely 100% came down to, I do not want to learn a new marketing automation platform. Yeah. And from a strategy perspective, I was like the marketing ops strategist. Like, how do we tie together the data with the strategy? We have a we have a digital marketing manager who's really good at can figure out any marketing ops challenge. So I worked really closely with him. But I was like, the dashboard needs to show me this so I can make this kind of business decision. I was the marketing ops strategist. And I, it just was not a good use of my time to learn a new MAP. And so I, it was worth it for the company to rip out Salesforce Marketing Cloud and put in HubSpot just to save my time. And I would make that decision every single time again. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense as a previous HubSpot seller. I mean, Marketing Cloud is brutal. Um, <laughs> so... There it is, Carl. There it is. Your I had to plug it every up. every single podcast episode. <laughs> I plug it right. It's like right here. Um, I want to ask about timeline, right? Because again, it's like okay, you updated product pages. You were you were doing some stuff really fast. You brought in an agency, and you mentioned some really great results. But I'm going to put myself in Adam, your CEO shoes, and I'm like, how much time is passing while all this stuff is happening before we start to see like high intent inbounds? Mm -hmm. So. 
what ad spend i'd also love to know tactically did you kind of start with if you're comfortable sharing that where did you start from a budgeting perspective on linkedin only and then how long did it take for you to start to how many months weeks i don't know this is mj maybe it took hours i'm not sure <laughs> uh, but how long until we started to you know like you take a breath of fresh air and you're like okay i just spent a lot of money over the past whatever time and we're starting to see some results time scale and spend talk to me mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'll start by saying um, I want to go back to the two things that the company wanted when I started. Wanted the, the product marketing to be there for the messaging to really resonate with the ideal customers and uh, to put points on the board. So there's two priorities. And the customer research that I started doing on day one and then shipping to the website on day 10 <laughs> um, was like, clear and obvious progress on that product marketing piece of things. And, you know, after we worked through that middle of the period pyramid messaging, we went up to the top of the pyramid and we revisited strategic narrative. We redid the homepage as an output from that. So we like did all the messaging strategy stuff like piece by piece. And then we shipped it to the website and we shipped it to sales decks and things like that. But like we did the marketing strategy work or the messaging strategy work and then immediately shipped it somewhere. So there's like clear and obvious progress on the messaging stuff happening and I think because of that clear and obvious progress on priority number one, the pressure on the demand gen priority number two was drastically reduced. And so I was like working as fast as I possibly could to put points on the board. But I I probably uh, like got less scrutiny than I otherwise would have because I also was making progress on this other messaging thing. Yeah, you built trust um, really fast, yeah. which gave you some more runway, sounds like. Yeah, definitely. And so I could see a situation if a CEO didn't have messaging as a priority, um, then you might not have that almost like pressure relief valve of like, we're making progress on your other main priority. Um, and the scrutiny would be on demand and maybe the timeline would have been condensed because of that. But I think um, if you have the, if you, if there are two priorities, right, if there is a second priority besides just put points on the board, I would encourage any marketing leader to think about how you can make clear and tangible progress on that other priority. Maybe it's sales enablement, right? Uh, maybe it's, you know, getting product launches to be super consistent, like make clear and obvious progress on that priority to relieve the pressure off the demand gen. Because I mean, I know every freaking marketing leader says this, but demand gen does take time. And so anything you can turn on as a pressure relief valve, you should do that. Good so that's that. one piece of it. I We had this interesting thing when we first like turned on demand gen where like we had a like a spike in inbounds immediately. And then it like went down for a little while and then it came back up. And I wonder if other people see this because, um, and I think, I think it makes sense. You could rationalize it. It's like we put our messaging out there and people heard about CoLab and like the use cases we solve for, for the very first time. And inevitably in that audience of hundreds of thousands of people, there were people that like had that problem viscerally and like were ready to buy right now and had just never heard of us before. Mm -hmm. And that that was the, all they needed to do was see one ad and one landing page. And those people came in about immediately. So we saw that spike, right? But then you get those people, right? And then they're gone, right? So then it kind of drops back down. And then from the baseline that you go back to, you need to like build up steadily by like improving messaging, by improving creative, by improving targeting, by shipping experiments more frequently, by, you know, 
figuring out that these couple of messages work and then you leave those on and then you stack some more experiments on top of them, right? So what we observed was like an immediate spike. It went down to a baseline and then steadily rose from there. So I'll pause there. Yeah, again, still trying to, that's awesome. I'm trying to get a sense of like a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, VPs of marketing that are evaluating Refine Labs asked me like, well, how much spend do you start with? Are you comfortable sharing like sort of where you would start from a spend perspective and how you thought about that, right? I'm sure Adam was like, cool, you want to spend 5k or 10k or whatever, like, why that number, I guess, walk me through your decision making. And then again, the timeline, what kind of timelines are we talking about here? Are we six yeah. months in or like how long, how much time has elapsed? Yeah. So I think one thing that impacts this a lot is whether or not paid search is going to work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, because paid search is a lot more straightforward, I think, than paid social. <laughs> and it didn't work for us at all. We tried. Uh, I would love to have paid search as a channel, but it, we just, we we really tried and it just, there's nothing there for us. But like, um, paid, if you're in an established category, like you paid search can be really predictable. It's like people search this, this often, this keyword works for us or it doesn't, we can spend this much. If you're getting opportunities at a reasonable cost from paid search, you should get as many of those opportunities from that keyword as you possibly can before it becomes economically like not feasible. Right. Yeah. So I don't know, like depending on your market, like that could be 10 K a month on paid search. It could be 25 K a month. It could be a thousand dollars a month. Right. For us, it is zero. (laughs) Um, So like I would tap that first and that's just sort of like, that's the paid search pool. I think your paid social pool needs to be separate from Mm -hmm. your paid search pool. And I mean, depending on how many people are in your audience, um, or in your total addressable market, the fit your ICP, you're going to reach X percentage of them based on how much you spend, right? So like we have several hundred thousand people in our audience. And if we spend, you know, 10K a month, we reach like 30% of them uh, at the frequency we want. If we spend more, we reach a greater percentage of them. And if you're reaching everyone and um, regularly getting messages in front of them, that's like, uh, that. that's when you have you have hit the ceiling. Right. So if you have an enormous total addressable market with like millions of people in it, you might need to spend a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars a month on paid social to reach all of them, you know. And um, you know, as long as you've uh put in place a framework where like you are good at creative, you are shipping messages that resonate, you're sending people to great landing pages, like you can continue to scale up your budget all the way to that ceiling and your results should continue to scale with you. Um, but look, I think. If you have an audience to give people some really pragmatic, like practical advice, if you have an, if you if you have like fifty thousand people in your total addressable market, I think you could probably test demand gen for five k a month. If you have a hundred thousand, you could probably test it for ten k a month. And this is just the paid social piece of the equation. So I'd say five thousand dollars for every fifty thousand people in your audience should give you enough data to test. Awesome, love it. Okay, let's talk to let's talk about the timeline piece then, and then we'll move on because you also ran kind of a wild ABM experiment that you talked about on LinkedIn. And I want to get into that um, timeline to results. Uh, mm-hmm. again, are, we, are we talking about 90 days towards you? Like, okay. So you kicked off, you saw a spike. Did you see that spike? Like in, in month one of like running demand gen or how, again, how much time is probably elapsed here and how are you communicating with Adam on, you know, expectations, et cetera, throughout this process. This is the reason I asked is this is an area that a lot of marketers, just struggle with navigating this period of time where 
you know, there's not explosive results, but there is significant investment happening and there's there's this pressure, right? So how'd you navigate that and how much time are we really talking about here in your case, in your in your specific instance? Yeah. So first of all, there there is one variable which is in your control, which is how often do you ship good stuff? Mm. Like marketing is about shipping stuff at the end of the day. So if you're going to agonize over the creative and send back 18 revisions and you're only going to ship a new set of creatives every six weeks, then you your time to results is going to be a lot longer than if you do your customer research, you develop your value prop, you make your copy, you put that into creative and you're shipping new creative every two weeks. So we got online with our agency and we shipped our first creative with them, I think after two or three weeks. And then we continued to ship at least monthly, sometimes twice a month after that. And now we ship weekly because we have a full-time person doing it. And so our time to results is probably faster than most companies. I think we we were probably, I don't know, at least 80th percentile on just like pure velocity because we were focused. Uh, we were good at customer research. We just made it happen. And our agency was a good partner that way. So, you know, assuming that velocity, yeah, we did. We did get inbounds like the first time we turned on. LinkedIn ads. Um, yeah. I think we got one or two and that was that initial spike, right? And then in month two or three, that was when we kind of stabilized back down to that baseline of the number of inbounds. And then in month kind of four, five, and six, we progressed from um, the benchmark I'll throw out here is dollars of pipeline per dollar of spend. So like in month two and three, we we're probably only generating like a dollar of pipeline for a dollar of spend which sounds okay, except for then your close rate's probably only going to be 20 or 25%. So you're only going to get 20 to 25 cents back for that dollar. So in order to break even, you need to get to at least $4 of pipeline for $1 spend. So I would say in month like four and five, we probably ended up around four or $5 of pipeline per dollar of spend. And then in month like nine or 10, we had another huge jump where it was four or $5 up to like $10 of pipeline for $1 of spend. Um, and that's, you know, that's when you start making two or $3 of revenue for every dollar you're putting into your ad channel. And the difference there was going from agency to a full-time hire. Um, also our full-time hire Rowan is freaking awesome. Um, nobody tried to poach him, but, um, yeah, he, he did a number of things like including, uh, increasing the velocity of how fast we ship creative as well as like going really deep on targeting and how campaigns were set up. So he made a number of improvements to our audiences. Um, and he just like is testing stuff all the time that, and that was the difference like between $4 and $10. But I think if you're doing it with an agency, if you're shipping creative kind of like once a month, you should be able to eventually get it to break even $4 of pipeline for $1 spend before you make it somebody's full-time job. Let me um, double click on this for a second. I, I love this idea of like the cycle time early on to get up and running and the creative at two weeks, et cetera. Did you find that it was the speed of the creative or was it the accuracy of your message that made the difference in that? I often say you should go fast at the beginning because you may not know what works, mm-hmm. but it sounds like you had a pretty good idea what works. So was the frequency because you had a lot of messages you want to get in the market quickly in terms of like frequency and reach or was the speed, the importance of the speed of your creative velocity because you're testing messaging, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. So um, I'll go back to the use cases. We picked three. 
um, and with a creative was like based on one of the three use cases at any given like launch. And then based on what the creative said, we directed them to the corresponding use case landing page on the website. So it was like add creative, same, you know, the, the messaging on the website is just like an expansion of what they would have already seen on platform. Um, and so we like we did like one per use case every two weeks. So we were like cycling through the use cases. And so what we figured out was like some use cases resonated better than others. And like some there, like so even it was like to the level of like some words or like acronyms like resident worked better than others. And then we started to figure out like across the use cases, like, you know, um, if you did the creative in a certain way, one thing that worked really well for us, for example, was taking like the most interesting word from the copy and finding a, finding an image that matched the word. So like we run this one ad that says, when you say design freeze, do you really mean it? The most interesting word is freeze, right? And so we put a melting ice cream cone next to that, right? So if you can like tell as part of the story visually, like that worked really well. And then we like started just like ripping off ads from people in adjacent industries. Like, oh, that's a cool creative. Well, can we make that relevant to this use case? And so we started testing all of those. And so, yeah, the at the beginning, it was just like, put the use case messaging into the market. And then, you know, round two, three, and four was like double down on the messages within that use case that work the best. And then five, six, seven was like double down on the creative trends that are working the best. And then we just kept going from there. And every time we found something that worked, we just left that on. So we have a campaign called Evergreen and a campaign called Experiments and Evergreen, like all the good stuff just goes into Evergreen and is on all the time. And you kept... Um, just want to kind of delve into detail here. You kept the thread early on use case. So you're like, we think our hook is we have these unique use cases that we want to get in front of our audience. Some of them will resonate more than others, depending on the audience, the situation. That's our bet. It wasn't necessarily social proof. It wasn't necessarily um, more brand kind of like problem statements, you know, like uh, I've seen that work as well. You honed in on, it's not high level, it's not low level, it's like use case. So kind of tied back to your pyramid, the thing that yeah. you observed from the beginning to kind of make this thing come full circle. I would say we went, we went like a hundred percent use case for like five months and just boom, 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 iterated really fast. And like the interesting thing is at the beginning, you're not just like getting used to and learning about the messaging. You're also getting used to and learning about the entire motion itself. So like you're just getting used to like, how does my team work through like making copy, like taking the value prop, turning it into copy, turning it into ads, building the ads, getting them out to the door. Like you need to, you've got to go through that motion a couple of times before you're used to it. Right. So if you're like, trying to learn how to do that and trying to test like use case messaging and trying to test brand messaging and trying to test case studies and trying to test social proof. Like you're, it's going to be hard. Like the progress is going to be really slow. So we only did use cases for a while. And then now we layered in a lot more stuff, right? Content. We do a lot on the retargeting layer with social proof. Um, but like we kind of to the refine labs concept of stacking growth, we stacked those things on top of the use case thing. Once we got that working. I love how like you just dispel myths here, MJ, right? Like, first of all, you did some stuff that like you're just told not to do online, um, right? Like ripping out your tech stack. I think you, re you revamped your website too really quickly. Um, mm -hmm. It's like, I mean, you're just going to make a whole bunch of LinkedIn marketing influencers hair stand up with that one. And like you saw results. What I would 
think are like pretty fast, right? Everyone thinks it's like take this takes years, but really it's like when you do it really well, you get results. When you turn on ads with the right messages, you get meetings. Similar to turning on, uh, it can be almost as transactional as turning on an SDR team, right? Once they start dialing with the right message, you're going to get meetings, right? And so you've broken down, like, I think a couple of these, and uh, you've really challenged some of these myths. I want to hear about, you, so you did do an experiment. I don't know if it was successful or not. Maybe you can unpack it for us. You unpacked it on LinkedIn. Tell me a little bit more about this ABM experiment that you did. You shipped it like in one day. Um, you did like a Friday sprint with your team or something like that. Like describe that experiment. And I guess fast forward, tell us like what you learned, what it produced, and what were some of your takeaways from that experiment? Are you still doing it? So yeah, mm -hmm. unpack it for us. Yeah, I like, I always thought the concept of ABM made sense, but like I kind of wanted to strip it back to the fundamentals. It's like, it made sense to me because I was like, okay, you just zoom in on like a small part of the market. And because you zoomed in, it's the same way we zoomed in with use cases, right? Like we can make our messaging more relevant because we zoomed in on this use case. You're zooming all the way into like the account level. And in our case, we picked actually five accounts that all are kind of lookalikes to each other. They're all in the same vertical. They're all about the same size. And so we zoomed in and we and we made messaging that's like hyper relevant, next level of relevance below use cases, like specifically use case vertical, like what is the most relevant to these five companies. And then we put all of that messaging on a landing page and then we put all the messaging in creative. So it was really just plugging in all the stuff we were already doing with our use case demand gen motion and zooming it into the account level. And yeah, it was totally a test. It was like, does this work better than the the higher like the higher level um, use case messaging or the broader use case messaging and it it is more expensive that's the first thing I'll say because LinkedIn is going to charge you for that level of precision in the targeting the CPM goes up however uh, it's more it's more effective because the messaging does actually resonate more with people. Even just the simple act of like throwing their logo into the creative does like jack up the creative the the click through rate way up. So more people consume it and more people click through to the landing page when it's hyper relevant is what we found. And so the CPM like cancels out the with the click through rate and you end up getting a very similar or even sometimes a lower cost per click through to the landing page. So what you're doing is very effectively getting a lot of people to consume the message that you want them to consume. So it's a really effective, if you do it right and you execute the messaging well, it's a really effective way of getting targeted messages in front of the right people. Now, from a pipeline creation perspective, um, the overall, we've found the broad-based use case stuff more effective. We get more pipeline from that. Um, we did, we thoroughly tested this ABM thing. We did it like seven more times in Q1 with all kinds of different accounts. The reason that I think SDRs? this is... Did you have SDRs in there as well? Was that a part of the play? Like reach, like SDR outreach, was that a part of your play or was it just purely like a marketing? It's a good question. We should come back to the SDR piece of it. It was mostly a marketing thing, but okay. the SDR piece of it is actually the one exception to everything I'm about to say. So yeah, so ultimately we turn it off. It doesn't generate enough pipeline. And I think the reason that is, is just because you are you all of a sudden are fishing in a much smaller pond. So like you have a great fishing rod or whatever. <laughs> Maybe I'm kill killing this analogy, but you're fishing in a much smaller pond. So it's like, you know, if your product is relevant to 250,000 people, all of a sudden you've narrowed the, 
the pond to 1500 people. And then you apply the lens of only 3% of people or 1% of people at any given time are actually willing to take action and talk to sales. Even if you are creating demand, like just a lot of people are not in the mood to like, go be the champion of a software product um, on any given day in the week. And some, and the math at a certain point and a certain audience size, it just stops working. So actually for us at the end of the day, um, given the math of all of that, the broad-based stuff works a little bit better. I could see that being different for different company sizes. And some companies don't have a choice. They just have a small TAM and a huge ACV and they have to do it that way. But we ended up uh, not pursuing that anymore after after Q1. Now, sales dev had a very focused account list in Q1 and Q2, and it worked better than having a less focused account list for sales dev. So that was an interesting takeaway as well. Why do you think that is? It maybe seems like an obvious question, but was their message just like, did they take the message that you developed on the marketing side and it was like the message was better or they were spending more time on fewer accounts? So there was just a, a time fishing um, aspect to this. So they were just, they just had their their line and their bait in the water for longer because they kept working it or like, I don't know, is there is there a nugget there you can hone in on? Why do you think that that was, or is just, it's just simply like calling is just maybe a, just a more direct channel to get somebody on. In, into a conversation than a more passive channel where you're waiting for somebody to respond to an ad. Where, what, what's your hypothesis on what you think is more effective there? As crazy as it sounds, I think um, list building is hard. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you like have a really tight target account list and you put actual strategic energy and thought into that and you th- then equip your sales dev team with that, they will produce better results than if you ask them to go build their lists on their own, which is what we were doing before. Um, list building is hard. And if you help your SDRs with it, they will have better results. Man, I want to do like a whole, like we're running out of time. I want to do like a whole, you know, tangent here on how you built a list because it is, I say this all the time, like list building is the most painful exercise that any company can go through. And uh, it's just not easy. It's not just about putting filters in Zoom info, you know? So I'd love to unpack why you chose the five or seven companies and how you chose those. But I think we have to table that for now. I want to keep going. Okay. So you're, I don't know, six, nine, 12 months into the role. So that's, I don't know, what, what is that? December or something like that? No, it's Mm -hmm. February, you know, things are starting to move. You've got your performance marketer now in house. You're not using Mm -hmm. agency anymore. You're seeing good results. How are you thinking? What's the conversation like with Adam and the team? Um, what's next? Mm-hmm. If, you're think, if you're going back in time, like where were you in that headspace? Some good mm-hmm. traction. Now what? So um, I started doing a pretty focused like marketing planning approach and I do it quarterly. Um, and I start it usually if I'm on top of things on the first day of the last month of the previous quarter. So on March 1st, I start planning for Q2. Um, and I will start by doing this like brain dump with Adam. It's like, I I will put everything into, we use FigJam. It's like a digital whiteboarding tool from Figma. I'll put like all these sticky notes on there. Like these are all the things I think we could improve, like pretty qualitatively, like high level objectives, right? Get more consistent about product launches, like you know, um, help you know, help our sales team uh, overcome the late stage buying objections that this particular persona in the buying process tends to have, like things like that, right? 
Um, and I'll just throw all my thoughts on, down on there and then I'll, I'll use it as like a starting point to have a one hour discussion with Adam. Like, here's all the things I think, what am I missing here? What do you think? And basically I just use that session. He like vents like, okay, this is all the stuff I really want to see from marketing. Right. And this I think is an excellent way to tap into CEOs that care about marketing and have a lot of strong opinions and ideas. I think this CEO archetype can either be a marketer's best friend or their worst nightmare because they're also the kind of CEO that's going to be like, oh, let's do this. Like, let's do this. And it blows up your plan, right? And marketers get very frustrated by this. So like, it's again, this concept of pressure relief valve. Like if you do this thing with the CEO um, at the beginning of your quarterly planning process, they'll feel like they can get all of their ideas out there. And also you get some great ideas about like directions and things that you're not working on. And so- that's the first thing I do when I do my mar- quarterly marketing plan. And so- Hone in on um, one thing there. Yeah. One of your sticky notes was a very sales, sales yeah. type of thing. Um, so that stuck out to me. Like, I don't think that marketers are like, oh, I want to help sales with like late stage objections and helping them close those deals. It's typically like, you know, me or Cassie, like a sales leader is thinking about those things. What gives you the right? <laughs> okay. But no, like more seriously, like you care about that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you see, you take accountability and ownership even over things like that. I like, tell me, like, tell me about that a little bit, mm-hmm. a little bit more. Well, um, one thing I like to uh, kind of think about is there are some functions in a business that are like operational, like, I don't want to say reactive because that's almost like a negative connotation, but like they have like a bunch of things to do every day, right? Like sales has calls, they have deals, they need to close, they got to keep this stuff moving. And because of that, like, it's not like they have huge chunks of time in the day to go out and be like, I'm going to do a bunch of research and develop messaging that addresses like this particular objection. Like, like if they get that objection, they just got to handle it. Right. Like, and like you've trial by fire. That's kind of like how sales is right. Customer success too. Like you're just on calls every day. Like if the problem comes up, you got to handle it. Um, marketing and product, I think are two functions where like you have like large blocks of unstructured time and you need to go structure them such that you're like solving a business problem. And so I think the, it like advantage or what marketing can bring to the table is like if, if the same problem keeps coming up across sales and like sales is just handling it like the best they can, which is sometimes very good, right? What you can do is actually apply some of those large blocks of unstructured time that you have at your disposal to put a ton of thought into that objection or positioning that feature or what have you that sales doesn't necessarily have because they got to keep the keep the numbers moving, right? Like um, they got to fly the planes. And so I think if you can take some of those problems that are persistent across the whole team, take them away, apply some real deep thought to them and come back with like, here's some thoughts um, that we would like to test. And you work with the sales team on that. And then you get their feedback on it. Like, hey, did the messaging we developed actually work to overcome this objection? If you get a few wins, and we've had a couple of wins like that, where, hey, try this tweak to the messaging and like it keeps working, they'll keep doing it. If you give them something good, they'll just, they're like, great, my, now I don't have that problem. Now, whenever this comes up, I'm going to use that messaging again and again. Um, I think that's the value you can add. You can use those large unstructured blocks of time to your advantage. So I, I, I like to brainstorm like what we have that like in our arsenal, like where should we apply it in terms of relieving sales bottlenecks? 
I think that's awesome. I mean, it says so many things, right? Um, you're trying to align a business problems and not just thinking in the silo of marketing, right? Um, you also like, obviously this speaks to the fact that you're close to sales conversations still, right? Like obviously you listen to gong calls or you know, you have a pulse of what's happening. So you're very, very involved, uh, which is, I think, you know, to anyone listening, like that's a takeaway that I hear, right? Is that you're super involved and I don't know how many marketers Hey, maybe all of them that are listening to this are super involved like that, but I think that's, that's pretty powerful. So, okay, let's keep going. So you're doing Fig Jam with Adam. What's the output? What, mm-hmm. do you, what did you do next, I guess? Because, I mean, this was like if you did a Fig Jam earlier this year, because you haven't been in Colab for forever, mm-hmm. what was the actual output of that? What did you prioritize? What did you do next? Yeah, so going into Q1, uh, we, like, transitioned from agency to full-time demand gen marketer. And so the main thing was, like, get to the next level, like bust through the next ceiling for demand gen. And, and we pulled that off. So Q1, it was like, boom, we got from $4 per dollar of spend to $10 per dollar of spend. Like demand gen is crushing, firing on all cylinders. Like the, that team operates very independently. I'm not like super in the weeds on that anymore, which is awesome. Cause as a VP of marketing, I think what you want to be doing is like figuring stuff out and then just like backfilling yourself, you know, and that's so that you can deal with more ambiguous stuff and then you can backfill yourself and you can operationalize the next thing. So that's, we kind of like got that done in Q1. Going into Q2, um, I really wanted to be super consistent about product launches and also backfill myself and operationalize that. So we promoted an SDR into a product marketing role. Um, and he, but he and I worked super closely together in Q2 and now he owns all the product launches and I don't really have to be that involved in those either. So that was like a big win in Q2. Next, and I think a lot of people will be surprised that we haven't really done this yet, but like I would love to turn just like organic into more of a uh, consistent create demand chan- channel for us. Cause like Adam has a personal brand and it kind of generates a little bit of pipeline and Colab has a decent company page and got some SEO. SEO is kind of a separate topic, but like, uh, you know, we, our number one sources right now are paid social and uh, word of mouth. And um, I would love to like blend in some more organic demand creation into there. It's a big project. It's going to take a long time, but that'll drastically bring down our, uh, our CAC. And I see the webinars that you guys do or the, uh, I don't know what you call them. I know webinars yeah. is like a, is like a ugly word live event. I don't know. Is that a, is that new? Is that a part of like this organic play and how, I guess, is that it's just a, that's a tactic I've seen you or strategy I've seen you execute lately. Mm-hmm. How's that working? Yeah, totally. It's a, it's a good call out. So, um, the, the toughest part I think about building an organic demand gen engine is uh, the original thinking, right? Like it's not like content repurposing is not that hard, right? Creating a piece of content that is worth repurposing is really hard because oftentimes there aren't that many people inside your company that are like generating a stream of like true insights, right? That your ICP is like, I will follow this person to get these insights. Yeah. And so what we're trying to do through that motion, um, we call them keynotes, is like put together a huge, like jam-packed one hour thing with a ton of insights. Uh, and then we can use that event for repurposing. So that one event might give us, you know, five blog posts, 25 social clips, whatever. Um, but like Adam and I both uh, invest a huge amount of time into making the keynote, like really rich with original insights. And it's something that Chris does really well. Like 
on his own. He's just like coming up with crazy original insights all the time. Um, and so we are trying to like, you know, basically replicate, I think what Chris does very well naturally um, with some systems and processes here at Colab. And that's been going for how long? A few months now? Yeah. Um, I think we did our first one in Q4. And then in Q1, we did two. We actually did the keynote style, which is just Adam talking. And then we did a panel with people from the industry. And since Q1, we've been alternating keynote panel, keynote panel, two a quarter. So you could have done a million things, MJ. You know, I love this question. You know, it's coming. But like you could have done a million things, but you chose a keynote, right? Mm -hmm. You chose the specific topics. Uh, why? Why the, a keynote? Why not a podcast? Why, why not some any of the other things that you could have done? You you chose this. Like walk me through your decision making progress and how you kind of landed on this. And were, were there some really good ideas that were kind of left on the cutting room floor that you'd like maybe revisit? Yeah, we um, I literally have ignored our podcast, just like completely not put any energy into it. <laughs> you have one is what I'm hearing. I didn't know that. Okay. Yes, we had one when I got there. I mean, we like we published to it a decent amount, right? But it's not like a strategic priority for me. Um, we put the keynote on the podcast, right? But like the point is to create a great keynote and the podcast is a distribution channel. It's not like the pillar. I think a lot of people, this is like one of my hot picks, like a lot of companies just go through the motion with a podcast. Like they have a podcast to have a podcast and they make episodes so that they have episodes to post on their podcast, right? Refine Labs does not fall into this category, but like, I think a podcast it can serve a number of purposes and a lot of people are unclear on what purpose it does serve. So yeah, um, you can do it for purely for networking where you're like, I'm going to invite someone on this podcast to be a guest and then I'm going to sell to them because we now have a relationship. Like a lot of people do that. It's a very straightforward playbook and it works, but a lot of people don't execute it. They like, they, they reach out to random people and interview them and they don't sell to them afterwards. And then you just get all these one-to-one -one interviews, some of which like aren't that interesting because you didn't execute it that well. Yeah. There's like the media company playbook, which is I'm, I'm producing these episodes because I want as many people as possible to subscribe to my podcast. And then basically I insert free ads for my product as an ad. It's like I built a media company and I give myself free advertising inside yeah. of the media company. And then there's the brand marketing playbook, which is what Colab is doing. So what we do is we come up with true original insights um, that support our brand and our narrative. It's all tied back into strategic narrative. And then we put those on the podcast and we put them in a lot of other places, but by consuming the insights, which are actually going to help people execute their job better and could in theory be applied, whether you use collab to achieve them or not. Um, then, then we have like a constant stream of brand marketing material. And the reason the keynote works well for that is because Adam talks the entire time. Mm. And so if you do interviews, you do not control the narrative most of the time, right? On this podcast, for example, I'm controlling the narrative because I'm doing most of the talking, right? Right. So it's hard for this to be a brand marketing thing for Refine Labs. I mean, I tend to align a lot with Refine Labs thinking. So to that extent, sure. But if if your CEO talks the whole time in keynote style, then it's very easy to control the narrative and make that a brand marketing like content pillar. I love that. And do you all distribute it 
like, is it just distributed via like, I don't know, whoever's in your CRM, like from an email distribution list? Um, do you, you, do you put any paid behind like promoting, uh, the, the keynotes? Yeah. So we, we get, we try to get people to come to the keynotes and it's a mix. There's a lot of people in pipeline. So it's kind of an interesting, like, I didn't really start it thinking this. I started it so that we'd have brand marketing repurposing stuff, but um, a lot of in-pipeline accounts attend the keynotes and it's like a good little nurture touch. Uh, SDR, our SDR team is very involved in like help and like inviting people. And it's like, um, can also be a good touch for them. Like, you know, less of an ask than like, let's book time and have a call, but like, Hey, here's this keynote. What do you think? Right. So they use it and they get a lot of people to attend. They get most people to attend. Right. Um, nice. So your yeah. SDRs are actually the most effective distribution channel for the keynote. hundred percent. Yeah. For people actually attending the live event right. and then we'll take the clips and we'll use paid social um, behind the best clips and we'll follow up on our email list too. But um, most of the distribution of the messaging is clips promoted via paid. So what do you do in a situation? I'm sure a lot of marketers that are listening, like their CEO, like Adam, again, again, one of the common threads here is like Adam is very, uh, he, he's very enlightened. Okay. So he, he doesn't like get marketing. He's admitted that, but like, he really trusts you and he does, and he's, he gets marketing. Like he's in this, in this, sorry, Adam, for saying that if you listen, <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, like he's not resistant. He's not a blocker to you. He understands he has a lot to learn. He's very much like on board with doing whatever MJ tells him to do. That's going to create pipeline for the company. You know, um, he's very open to learning. Like, what do you do in a situation besides just not join a company like this? I guess is is one of the answers. Uh, you did a good pre vetting uh, before you took the role. But what if you find yourself in a role where, like, I don't know, your CEO is just kind of like this product guy. You know, he's an engineer which is funny because I know Adam is an engineer actually, uh, but like doesn't really want to get on social, like doesn't like, how would you, what would you say, I guess, what advice would you sort of give to that marketer? And you can't tell them that they should just find another company. You're not allowed to give that answer unless you yeah. really believe that's the only option. Uh, well, I actually think that this, the, the case you just described is less often the case than mm-hmm. marketers make it out to be. That's I think okay. like most CEOs would get marketing if they worked with a marketing leader that gets the CEO. Yeah. Right? Like, and I think you got to think about how do you do things that the CEO like really respects you for doing. Right. And I know that's kind of like, uh, that's like a, almost a crazy thing to say, but it's like when the CEO started the company, they had to do everything. Right. Yeah. And so they very quickly figured out some things add value and some things don't add value. And they had to ruthlessly be like, I'm only going to do the things that add value. Um, yeah. and so you'll notice like a lot of, um, a lot of early stage CEOs, they do a lot of sales, right. And sales always gets a seat at the table. You know why? Because bringing revenue in adds value. Like there's no not respecting that, right? And so I think you got to think about, especially early stage, are there things that you can do that are hard, that don't scale, that will earn you the CEO's respect so that when you want to ask for permission to go do something that scales a little bit more, but requires some money on the table, that you have the credibility to to go and do that. And some examples are like, can you find five prospects that are willing to talk to you 
um, that the company has never talked to before, do some customer research with those people and bring insights back into the business. Because as an early stage founder, the founder had to do that. They had to get in front of people that, that you know, didn't know who they were and didn't care. Uh, and then they had to learn about those people's pain points and their jobs. And then they had to come back and turn that insight into a valuable product that they could go and sell or turn the, that insight into a playbook that helped them sell what they already had. And if you can do that not at scale, then the founder, the CEO will start to believe that you can do it at scale. And I think the root of a lot of marketing people not being given permission to do the stuff they want to do at scale is because they haven't established credibility on a small scale. Mm. I'm with you there. Um, it's a hot take. <laughs> it's a hot take. Um, yeah, I think I think you're dead on. It's 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 a. Uh, there's always like two narratives, right? That you kind of see floating around out there, right? It's like the CEO that doesn't get marketing narrative. Um, and then there's also like always kind of like the underlying implications like, well, would a CEO be way more open to stuff though? If it was, you know, more tethered to, right? Like you said, something, something of business value, et cetera. And I think a lot of marketers, maybe, maybe, um, I'm not speaking to any marketers directly here, um, but like a kind of assume that they just deserve, right? Whatever it is, that seat at the table, that proverbial seat at the table, right? Without saying, hey, you know what? I need to go through kind of, right? The first six months or however long it takes to really earn credibility, earn trust, earn that seat at the table. Um, and you know what? Like, I think it's harder. I'm saying this as a sales guy, like it's harder to gain that trust and credibility as a marketer. I think it really is because sales is, more coin operated, it's a little bit more transactional. I can build credibility really fast. All I need is a is my cell phone and I can go and book a meeting and it's like, whoa, look how awesome Carl is and he's driving revenue, right? So I can just, my path, I have less obstacles. You know, marketers like, they don't have a lot of those, not necessarily, right? I guess you could argue you could do the customer research piece, but when it comes to like getting that to move the needle, there's a bunch of other stuff you have to do that takes a little bit more time. So, I mean, I'm hearing that you just had the patience and kind of the tenacity to push through that. And you kept Adam, you know, um, informed kind of along the way and you earned, you know, your place at the table, obviously you were promoted super quickly to CMO. Um, so anyways, I'm rambling. I want to ask uh, MJ in kind of our last 20 minutes here, like I want to unpack the scary stuff, you know, like, mistakes um or when if you look back like would you do it all different what would you do different i guess when i ask you kind of that list of three questions there that flurry what comes to mind um you know fairly quickly when it comes to mistakes or stuff you do different or like advice you'd give marketers that are listening mm -hmm. what would i do differently i i probably would do a lot of the same stuff that we did so you again. did a perfect job you did a perfect no, job. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, there's also like an element of like, you know, things that I can't talk about that I would do differently, sure. right? I mean, there's definitely things I would have, like, knowing that they pay off, I would have done earlier, right? Um, like, give me an I, example. I would have hired our demand gen manager a quarter earlier, like, if I knew that it was going to pay off. But yeah. I would still do it on the same timeline again, because the timeline I did it on allowed me to effectively mitigate the risk of hiring somebody for a full-time job and then that function not working for the business, right? Yeah. Was there anything- Oh in the my gosh, that... I made so many stupid communication mistakes running an SDR team for the first time. <laughs> oh yeah, let's unpack that. I want to bring that up. Yeah, so SDRs are underneath you. Uh, mm -hmm. 
And there's a few reasons for that that you shared kind of pre-call, right? Just to kind of like, uh, then there was sort of the line of accountability, right? Like you're owning all top of funnel. Well, I guess I'll, let's hear it from you. Like, what was that decision made like before you or um, were you a part of that decision to kind of take on the SDRs or I guess unpack why you all do that and how mm -hmm. that decision got made? Yeah. So when I joined um, Taylor, who's our chief strategy officer, her official job title was head of business development. All the SDRs reported to her. Um, and then she got promoted to chief strategy officer and it's an chief strategy officer is an interesting role. Um, the way I would describe it to someone is like eventually a founder CEO, like that role of CEO becomes too much work for one person, even one person who does crazy founder stuff, like working from 6am to 11pm every day. And so you need to split it out. And I think some companies split it out into CEO and COO mm. and the COO like, you know, has like, you know, legal and finance, et cetera, reporting to them. Um, and they take that off the CEO's plate. Some companies split it up into CEO and CSO and this chief strategy officer like does some of the heavy lifting around like roadmap. And, um, and I mean, in Taylor's case, she, we just plug her in wherever we need her, right? Like now, right now she's leading customer success. She won't always do that. But the idea was um, we, we should not like stick her in a operational day-to-day -day role. Like we should take some of those management things off of her plate. And so um, who should, it was like the question came up, okay, we don't want Taylor to have any direct reports anymore. Who should the SDRs report into? sales or marketing. Um, and our expansion motion is very complex. Um, and so that's like another element to the sales strategy that maybe not every company has to contend with, but that is very strategic for us. Um, and so it just felt like, man, owning closing, owning expansion strategy, that's a lot. So also owning sales dev would be a lot to put on a single VP's plate or see, uh, our, our uh, sales leader is uh, C-suite. But we could put it in marketing and then the marketing leader that was me can can own be have accountability for the entire pipeline. Um, and so that's what we decided to do. And so I hired a manager um, who reports directly to me and all the SDRs report to her. Um, so that's why we made that decision. And I started leading the sales dev team in October. You mentioned some communication mistakes. Yeah. I would say sales dev is like the if you want to get really good at people management, you should manage a sales dev team because it's like hundred percent people management, you know, like they do a tough job. Like every one-to-one -one is like important, you know, people like need support, right? It's like tough hearing no all day. Right. And not every role is like that. Not every role requires like the, just the pure management energy that sales dev or the leadership yeah. that the sales dev team needs. I don't think I knew that going in. And then the other thing is like we, while I was leading this team, we like established more consistent quotas and we, we put in place variable comp for that team for the first time ever. They were used to be just on a straight salary. Um, and we decided to pay variable comp, not just on revenue, but also on like sales accepted opportunities and SQLs, which is very, like a lot of companies only pay on revenue, which makes it very clear cut. If you're then paying variable comp compensation on SQL and SAO, your criteria need to be really dialed in. Yeah. So I was like making all these decisions all the time about like what counts, what doesn't count. And I like screwed up the communication on it a couple of times. And like, it, it really like pisses people off. Oh, it costs <laughs> some, yeah. I mean, it costs somebody money potentially. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's, that's treacherous. Those are treacherous waters to wade through. Um, when do you feel like, 
that unlock happened of communication, I guess, what's kind of a learning that you would take away from that besides like communicate better? Like what did you put in place to sort of protect against like that, you know, happening again, I guess. Well, the tricky part is like, you can't anticipate what the next question is going to be, right? Like to, you know, like I'll give you an example of like, does it count as an SQL if I book the meeting, but the meeting's not going to happen for 60 days, right? Because after 60 days, the the chance that that's going to be a no-show is like way higher than if I booked it for Friday, you know, like they're, they're just more likely to show up on Friday than 60 days from now when they've forgotten about it. Right. So that was one thing I had to like, I had to put in place that rule, like when that rule hadn't been there before, right? But I don't know what the next thing is going to be, right? Like that thing happened then, I don't know what the next thing's going to be. Like, so one of the things I just had to do is like be vulnerable. Like, listen, guys, like I'm doing my best, you know, I can't um, anticipate every question. Um, And so, you know, like I, you know, and own it when I screwed it up. It's like, I, I should have communicated that better or I, you know, I should, you know, I realize why that was unfair, but here's the other side of that decision that I could have made. And here's why that would have been unfair too. Right. So can you, you know, like just be transparent about here's, I had two bad options, right. Or whatever it is, just like be vulnerable and transparent and be like, I know I'm not perfect. And I, uh, you know, I'm going to commit to like being better about this next time communicating earlier, like sharing the full rationale behind why I chose to do it this way instead of this way and, and what the trade-offs were. And, and also just being honest about like, yeah, like a lot of companies do only pay variable comp on revenue, right? We're choosing to do SQL and SAO in addition to revenue because it gives you more control over your comp. Like you're not beholden to the AE closing it. Right. Um, however, the tr- the negative trade-off of that is I have to make all these decisions all the time. And sometimes it seems unfair, right? Yeah. Or it's just murkier again, to your point, like, uh, I mean, to develop rules of engagement like that is like, so so tricky. I mean, there's an infinite number of scenarios, you know, and I think that's such an awesome uh, route that you go of just transparency. I know as a seller, like I would appreciate that, right? Like, just tell me what the truth is. Maybe be generous to me. Like, Hey, this time we're going to give you credit, but like moving forward, this is going to be the rule, right? I think there's a generosity element there, like a benefit of the doubt. Um, but I think that transparency goes a super, a super long way. What, um, what else MJ, like, things that you would do differently. And if there's really nothing, um, then what do you feel like is the next major unlock? Uh, And maybe we can close out there unless you have a specific topic that you really want to cover. I'm curious to hear like, what's the next major unlock that you're excited about that you're maybe not ready to execute on today, but it's kind of on your Q3, Q4, Q1 Mm -hmm. fig jam um, that you're super pumped on. This is something you will find really interesting. We started scoring calls in Gong, sales calls. Okay. And I am I'm part of the scoring. And one of the criteria is around messaging. And we're being like fairly fanatical about like really getting every single rep on our team like really good at the messaging and like really good at discovery. And so when you say messaging, do you mean like when it comes time in a discovery call to be like, all right, well, let me give you a little bit of overview mm-hmm. of like what Colab does, like that little mini elevator story. That's the part you're talking about. Like you, y'all are really trying to get dialed in on that piece. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's one of uh, the pieces that's about messaging, right? Like there's other like really sales stuff in there. Like, did you set an upfront contract? Did you, sure. you know, end with next steps? Uh, but yeah, there's like a intro call scorecard. And, and, you know, one of the things is, uh, is your, you know, intro to collab aligned messaging. 
and I listen to two a week every week and I fill out the scorecard and, and like, I'm like coaching people on the different nuances of the messaging. And it's like, I'm kind of playing sales manager for two hours a week. Right. And then we just started doing that like last couple of weeks. That is fascinating. How do you juggle, I guess, I'm putting my sales rep hat on. How do you juggle like not suffocating like the salesperson to where like, oh my God, my discovery call is now a script. I'm being scored. If I don't say this or position this or use the right tone here, like MJ's going to jump down my throat. Like how are you striking that balance between allowing the rep to navigate a dis- Cause a discovery calls are like, they, they're dynamic, right? And for mm-hmm. the most part, they, they can be like in general the same, but sometimes as a rep, Maybe I'm wrong, but you got to call a play, you know, mm-hmm. like, you have oh, to be able to, like you have to flex, especially as the as the um, as the product gets more sophisticated and they come in for like, I think Colab has a couple different like, I don't want to say it definitely has multiple use cases, but it also has like different areas. There's like the supplier collaboration area and then there's like the main design area. So like as the product gets more complex, discovery becomes more challenging because a different thing resonated with this VP of engineering from this company than this VP of engineering. And so like, they're just interested in different things and that can shape your questions and what you're asking and I'm rambling, but how do you allow for that? Because I feel like that's where a lot of like the genius could happen too with like the best sales reps can just like, Mm -hmm. they can stay on track with the message, right? And deliver the crispiest, compelling, most compelling message, but it doesn't feel like Still feels like the buyer's in control. Still feels like mm-hmm. a buyer center call. It still feels like a really great business uh, conversation. Yeah. Rambly way to, to ask, like, how do you still allow for that gene mm-hmm. to happen without sort of strangling it? Well, first of all, maybe if you ask them, they would tell you that I am strangling it. So, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh I will say like, I do listen to calls and I'm like, yep, they're like, there's no way I would have executed that call better than they did. Right. Like that was excellent. Right. And it's actually great that we are going through the rigor of like listening to all of these calls because that allows us to be like, Oh, that one was excellent. And we can show other people like, instead of me trying to tell them what excellence hypothetically looks like, just be like, look, this call was excellent. And here's a different call from a different rep that was also excellent. And you can see that they were both excellent and hit all these criteria, but in their own way. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Um, I like to think that I have at least a little bit of empathy because I did do uh, a year in sale, a tour of duty in sales. Um, And so I know that it's so hard to like do a little discovery, like do kind of a thorough discovery, also position the product well, also set next steps all in a 30 minute window. Like that's the length of a first call. It's like nearly impossible. So like when I'm scoring them, I keep that in mind, right? Like I was DMing one of our reps today. I was like, oh, I'm scoring this one. And like, I know you said that was a painful one. And uh, he was like, yeah, if you give me a one out of five, I like won't, I won't like, you know, feel bad about it. And I was like, well, you didn't, your handling of it wasn't a one out of five because the prospect was like really challenging you. Right. I was like, there's a couple of things that I might suggest if you get this same objection again, but it's very hard. It's like unrealistic for me to expect that you would have come up with this stuff on the fly because I'm sitting here behind a computer, like having time, like sometimes I'm pausing it thinking about it. What would I say? Yeah. Right. So it's easier for me. And so I, I do score it like with that in mind. And, and I try to give feedback that's like general, not like say this, but like, uh, you know, 
um, we, you positioned it like this, where I think the real pain is, you know, more along the lines of this, right? So in the future, maybe think about how you could dig more into that pain instead of this, which I think is less important to the prospect, you know, like high level, not scripted. It's definitely fascinating. I mean, you called it. I definitely find that interesting. I've literally never heard that before, uh, like marketers um, or CMO, like scoring calls. Again, it's a, a kind of a testament to your dedication to remaining like in the weeds of the business, which I think makes the rest of your strategy so much more compelling and powerful because it's informed by real customer conversations, real sales rep conversations, et cetera. I guess, how are you going to maintain that? Um, as your role gets more sophisticated, as your team grows and you all scale from whatever you're at today, five to 10 to 20 to 50, you're going to step into like a more traditional, maybe CMO role where you do have a large team under you and you're managing now a lot of managers. What, I mean, looking into the future, like how, I guess, are you going to try to keep this finger on the pulse of Mm -hmm you know, the, the customer and, and, and the sales rep voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if this is the right answer because I haven't actually done this yet, but um, <laughs> what I, when I how the way I plan to tackle it is um, first of all, thinking about what I do every day in terms of the highest leverage activities, the medium leverage activities and the lowest level leverage activities. So like, um, what I mean by that is a, a one pretty high leverage thing I'll do is like once a quarter, I will do a deep dive on like a specific ICB, like a specific persona or like a specific uh, use case business process with our SDR team. Like, okay, we're going to talk about like the supply chain org in a manufacturing company. Like what are the job titles? What do they care about? What are the KPIs? How do they work with engineering? Like 45 minute presentation. And then the SDRs will like write for the second 45 minutes, they'll write a message to somebody in that role. And then we'll go around and we'll critique the messages. So in that 45 minutes, they learn something. They have a chance to apply that knowledge and get some feedback on it. So they kind of like refine it a little bit. And then they can carry that knowledge through the rest of the entire quarter, every single time they reach out to something, somebody about that thing. So that's high leverage. Like I spend an hour and a half and like I can impact people's like the SDR strategy for the whole quarter, right? So the question is like, how do you spend more of your day like on high leverage stuff versus like if I edit like a blog post, right? Okay, now that blog post is edited, but I'm going to still have to edit the next blog post, right? So how do I start to delegate lower leverage things and medium leverage things and do only high leverage things? And how do I make sure that what I am delegating is uh, something that is clear enough that it can be easily like learned and operationalized by whoever it is at whatever level that I hired them into that I'm backfilling myself with, right? So like I helped our product marketer uh, operationalize launches, right? And he was the right person at the right level to own launches. But like, if I was gonna, you know, delegate all of demand gen, then maybe I need like a director. Or if I was going to delegate all of customer marketing, then maybe I need a VP or whatever, right? Like you have to make sure that you're bringing in the right person at the right level that you can delegate that group of activities to them, which frees up your time to do only high leverage stuff. And the high, what what that mix of high leverage stuff is, it'll change over time. Mm-hmm. But if you take it chunk by chunk, I think you can stay on top of it. 
So back to my question, we'll, we'll wrap with this. I want to hear if like, there's anything you want to share, um, to the audience, but like what is, so what's next, I guess, what maybe is the next thing that you're thinking that's like really operationalized that you may leverage, uh, I'm sorry, uh, delegate. Mm-hmm. And what do you feel like is the next thing that you're super excited about? I know you're, you're doing the call scoring thing. What about like specifically marketing related? What's something, an experiment even that you feel like might be next for y'all if you're, you know, comfortable sharing some of the secret stuff. Yeah. Um, I think I might, uh, uh, actually delegate that, uh, keynote motion, mm. um, and the whole repurposing, right? Cause I think if I brought in a senior level content marketer, they can do a lot of the things that I do with Adam in terms of like pulling the insights out of him and packaging them up into a deck. And like, that's a big chunk of strategic work, but then like outline the strategy for, you know, how are we going to repurpose it? And, um, and, and take really just take that motion to the next level, right? Like all kinds of stuff around, fully utilizing that content that I haven't even thought of. Right. So, um, that's one thing that I'm thinking of packaging up and, uh, and delegating to the right person, because what I failed to say when I was taking you through that framework is like, if you, when done right, you're not just delegating it so that someone else is going to do it. You're making something that you're doing, frankly, like half-assed somebody's full-time job. And if you give it to the right person, then they will use that 40 hours a week that they have to take it to the next level rather than just keeping it status quo. I love that. What are you excited about that freeing you up to whole ass? Oh man. Um, Next, uh, next iteration of strategic narrative. Um, (laughs) We're going to revisit that. We are working on like uh, overhauling the website again. So I'm going to do the thing everybody says not to do again. Um, I mean, I guess when you're when you're pumping out like new insights and you're so like close to what the customer is saying, like that makes sense. I think when you're overhauling the website just because you're like, eh, I don't know, it just needs a refresh because it's ugly. It's like mm-hmm. that is not a good reason to overhaul a website unless obviously it looks like it was literally built in 1992. But in your case, I think it actually makes sense because it seems like the website overhauls are aligned to the aggressive volume at which you learn and generate new insights, you know, and like, so, so naturally the website has to be updated because you're so close to the customer voice. So I think that's like a really big takeaway from just what I've heard you say is you just learn at such a rapid pace that it requires everything else to be iterated on more rapidly. Would that, is that like an accurate sort of like assessment of sort of what's happening? Yeah, we actually, so I talked a little bit about the planning process where I have Adam just like you know, brain dump all of the things he wants marketing to be better at. And I turn those into OKRs. Mm. And one of our OKRs for this quarter, the objective is uh, catch the website up to current messaging. So it's like where we know our messaging should be because of what we've learned about the customers here. And the website has fallen behind because the website is static. It's not moving, right? And we need to catch it up, right? So I agree with you. Don't overhaul the website because you don't like it. Overhaul it because your messaging has moved so far beyond what the messaging on the website is that you need to catch it up. I love it. MJ, a couple minutes left. Any awesome question that I haven't asked that you wish I would have asked that would have teed you up to just like talk about something that is so that you're so passionate about that you'd love for uh, marketers at your stage um, or even talking to yourself 18 months ago, right? Uh, Anything that you want me to ask or share in the last couple minutes? I don't know, Carl, you do a pretty good job of getting in there. So uh, 
I'm trying. Uh, I think we, uh, I think we unpack some stuff that I haven't talked about before. I don't do that many podcasts anymore. I have a, now a rule that I only do one podcast or event per month. Um, and, and usually when I tell people that if I'm not available in the month that they ask me, they just don't ask me again. So I, I don't do that many podcasts anymore and it's good. I'm protecting my time, but, um, you're probably the only one that has access to these, uh, these original insights, uh, for a little while. I love it. For a little while, I felt like you just told me there that I'm cut off after this or something. Uh, well, uh, there's a batch of things. I'm, I'm keeping some things to myself um, that uh, we're going to go out and test. So, But but uh, depending on what I learn, I might share uh, another uh, batch of insights in the next six months, depending on what yes. I learn. Well, let's put something on the count. Cal- I'm a salesperson, so I got to book a next step here. I'm going to open up my calendar and we'll book something for like November. Uh, but no, MJ... This was awesome. I'm so excited for everyone to hear this. Um, this was great. I don't know that I've ever been a part of a conversation this deep that really, you know, obviously with customers and stuff, but being able to see like your whole entire journey and you unpack in depth um, what you did. It's such a, an elusive thing to like uh, build, you know, marketing for the first time at an org. And I think like you brought so much just transparency and visibility to it. I'm pumped. Um, I know your time is super valuable. Like if there are any marketers out, I mean, how do people, if they want to, you know, chat with you or connect with you, what is the best LinkedIn obviously is probably your answer, but how do we get in touch with you? Um, and where can people connect with you? Yeah. Listen, if you uh, thought this was interesting and you like, there's something that you're excellent at that I didn't talk about at all. Like it might be because I don't know. And I don't realize the power of that thing. Right. Maybe you're like amazing community marketer or like uh, sales enablement, whatever, like send me a message, connect with me on LinkedIn, send me a message. um, Like tell me why we're missing out on that thing. And uh, maybe that's the the next uh, thing I got to go tackle so I can talk to Carl about it in six or seven months. feels like you just invited a lot of, pitching uh to your inbox yeah no please no contractors i'm looking for like people who are brilliant full-time people i love it no contractors brilliant full-timers and it sounds like uh you're considering some kind of uh you know content i don't know what you called that role content manager role to take over um the keynote uh process and playbook and so you know i guess if you're listening to this and you're like a slam dunk for that then you should reach out to mj so 100 yeah Thank you so much for coming and uh, I appreciate you and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Carl. So stacking growth, everybody. Cassidy usually closes us out. He's not here anymore. So bye, we'll see you next time.